There couldn't have been a more perfect hymn to sing right before what we're about to read this morning from 2 Samuel chapter 23, David's own hymn to God's righteous uh, uh, shepherd king. And so hear now God's holy word from 2 Samuel chapter 23, continuing our study in this book. Now these are the last words of David. Thus says David, the son of Jesse, thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of Yahweh spoke by me and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be like the light of the morning sun when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. Although my house is not so with God, yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure, for this is all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not make it increase? But the sons of rebellion shall be as thorns thrust away because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in their place. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father, we thank you for your servant, David. We thank you for the way that you gifted him and inspired him with poetry and mastery of language so that he could write hymns and psalms like the one that we just read, like those that we've sung today. Father, we pray that in this hymn that you would show us Jesus that as David admits his own shortcomings as king, that in all these things it would just make us long more and more for the, king, uh, for the kingdom of, of our Savior Jesus. And so, Father, clarify our minds today. Uh, fill me with your spirit that I might speak clearly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It seems that our political discourse in this country over the last several years could be, um, could be summarized in this sentiment. And I've... And I've um, I've seen it from all sides. There's this increase in the sentiment, I wish you would just leave me alone. That's, that's how we would sum up our political positions toward the other side, wherever that other side is. I wish you would just leave me alone. On those areas where we feel that we should have some degree of autonomy, we don't want to be told what to do. None of us want to be told what to do. At the same time, there are areas where we feel like we ought to be able to tell other people what they should do. And then there's a whole realm of people who just really enjoy getting in other people's business while taking great offense if someone should try to get into their business. So you see this all the time. An abortion on demand advocate might say, get out of my womb but at the same time turn and assert their environmental agency's authority over what we eat or how we travel or what kind of light bulbs we can buy. How is that consistent? How can you say, get out of my life over here and I want all kinds of authority and input in your life over here? It's pretty confusing, it's pretty inconsistent. Hardly, hardly anyone has much clarity when we think through what are the limits of liberty? Who has the authority to say who does what 
And why? And, and frankly and honestly, if, we, if we're super honest conservatives, we are just as bad as, as liberals on this. I just read a piece by a conservative this past week who said, we need these things defunded so that we can have funds for these things over here. <laughs> it's, and, and, and it's just, oh yeah, that's exactly what we want. We don't want them to tell us what to do so that we can now have the authority to tell them what to do over here. So how do we, how do we, have a, how do we answer for that? How do we answer the one who says, get out of my womb, and you can't buy those light bulbs. You can't buy those fixtures for your home. How do we answer that? Well, it's very simple, and I think there's an easy path through this. Uh, it, it's the question of who's your authority? Where do you gain your authority? From what do you draw your authority and your presuppositions? You see, I don't say you must not kill your child. I don't say marriage is between one man and one woman. I don't say that. God has said that. I'm just repeating what God has said. God says these things, and, and I'm speaking his words after him. I'm not the authority, right? God is. God is the authority, and I'm repeating what God says. And for all these other areas where God has not spoken clearly, where God has not articulated his will, where he has given wisdom and liberty, room for wisdom, room for liberty, we ought to also, now there may be very wise things that we could do with, with some of these areas, but you see where the confusion in our culture is, it's this, we want to be super authoritarian over those areas where God has given us liberty. And we want to be antinomian over everything where God has spoken clearly. We are absolutely inside out and upside down. We are, uh, it's like this free for all. It's like we're these tin pot dictators over these little areas where God has not where he has not spoken. And so if, if you need any evidence for um, uh, satanic or demonic meddling in the minds of people, you only have to look, you, you don't have to look any farther than to see this, that uh, where, where God has spoken clearly, man wants gray areas. Where God has, has given liberty, man wants authority and the ability to tell other people what to do. So that's, so that's what we have. And unless we're complete status, and there are those complete status who just love uh, uh, intrusion and authoritarianism, but unless we're that, I think we have a tendency to think of rulers and government not as blessings from God. We, we, don't, think, we don't think of them as God-ordained authorities in our lives. We, we tend to think of human government as not much more than a necessary evil. And, and honestly... When you think about the scandal and the embarrassment that we've had in this country in just the last 40 years, if not our entire history, your confidence gets eroded to the point that you don't trust anybody. Now, there are a few exceptions. I think there are some sterling examples of great leadership, and I'm not saying that there's no example, but um, overall, you start to be so cynical and, and you, you think, who are these people to tell me what to do? I wouldn't trust them to run a snow cone stand, much less the most powerful nation in the world. And, and here they are running the whole country. Add to this uh, all uh, the, the, the scandal and the impropriety and the injustice. Add to this the sprawl of bureaucracy, where in, in fact, we do have all these uh, what, what you might call soft tyrannies, these intrusions of government into so many areas of our lives where I, I really want to say, get out of my bathroom and stop telling me what kind of you know, fixtures I can buy for my bathroom. Uh, get out of my bedroom, yeah, stop telling me what kind of light bulbs I can put on my, 
uh, in my bedroom and on my nightstand, right? Uh, get, get out of my kitchen and stop telling me what kind of milk I can buy uh, for my kids. And so, and so given this kind of intrusion and oppression, you ask us, what is the role of government? We might be very tempted to say, well, the role of government is to get out of my life. The role of government is to get out of my way, step back and leave me alone. That's, that's the role of government. And there may be a, a hint of truth to that um, uh, pushback. But the Bible, and I have to, you know, I have to swallow this and, 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 and trust this, because th- this is hard to say, but the Bible doesn't speak of rulers this way. That their job is just to leave us alone. The Bible doesn't say that government is a necessary evil. Instead, we're told this. We're told that righteous rulers are like the sun, which give life to the earth and cause good things to grow. That, that, that rulers are to be shepherds to their people. The Westminster Confession uses a phrase that I, I love. Uh, it uses a phrase, nursing fathers, and it, and it pulls that phrase from Isaiah 49 to describe the work of human government. The, the Westminster Confession says, yet... As nursing fathers, it is the duty of civil magistrates to protect the church of our common Lord. Uh, See, God establishes human government to protect his people, to uh, uh, care for his people. Now, so we've got to remember in all of our frustrations with our magistrates that, that our desire, our prayer to God is not for no government. Our prayer is not for no rulers or that simply all government would just simply butt out and let me be. But our prayer is for faithful, righteous, godly, holy rulers who will love us and seek the good of the people and not simply their own good, that they would serve the people and that they would serve God with fear. Our prayer is not that we would have no government. We're not praying for anarchy, but we do pray for faithful government. In 2 Samuel 23, we're given a picture of what faithful rulers look like. And and we're reminded that righteous rulers are one of the necessary conditions for the flourishing of a people. Tyrannical rulers, idolatrous rulers, are indeed, they're a terror. They're a plague. Everybody suffers under the rule of the wicked. In fact, the weakest suffer the most under the rule of the wicked. But... King is not a synonym for tyrant. Those aren't the same word. So so what we need is not no kings, but we need good kings. Here as we get to the close of um, 2 Samuel, we get this other piece of Davidic poetry, this hymn where he describes the blessings and duties and character of the faithful king. David tells us what we can expect from a righteous king and why such a righteous king is so important for our blessing. We're told at the beginning that these are the last words of David. Now, that doesn't mean that he said this on his deathbed. He didn't, he didn't write this as he was drawing his last breath. That doesn't, that doesn't mean that. We actually get those last words later on in 1 Kings chapter 2, where he's speaking to his son Solomon and telling Solomon to uh, take care of some unfinished business. But what this text is, these last words of David, this is, this is his last official public speech. This is his last formal declaration. It's like the blessing that Isaac gave his sons or the, or the blessings that Jacob gave his sons and grandsons or the last public speech of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter, 20, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 33. These big figures, these big men of the Bible have important things to share with us right before their deaths. They've spent a whole life 
of walking with the Lord and, and uh, being chastised by the Lord and being corrected and being blessed and encouraged by God's Holy Spirit. And after all of this time, they, they have some things to tell us. They have some things to say. And, and like these other men, David speaks when he knows that his time is almost up. Yet at the same time, David doesn't sound like Isaac and he doesn't sound like Jacob and he doesn't sound like Moses because what he gives us is not so much a blessing on his sons or a blessing on the nation about to go in and conquer Canaan. What he gives us is a prophetic description of Messiah. As he reflects on his own reign, as he reflects on the covenant that God made with him, as he reflects on his own failures, now he turns to the people and he says, this is the kind of king that God is going to give you. And in Davidic fashion, it's given in poetic form. He was blessed with this gift of poetry. He was the greatest songwriter that ever lived. I mean, I love, I love Bob Dylan. I love John Prine. I love a lot of great songwriters. But David, you know, you got David way up here and you got, you know, John Lennon, you know, and the other great songwriters down here. David was the greatest songwriter who ever lived. And so it is, it is uh, in character for him to deliver his last words in the form of a hymn. And that's what he gives us. Well, Remember where we are in the book of 2 Samuel. We're in this appendix right at the end, these just few chapters where uh, we started with a story of crisis and atonement. We moved to a roster of some mighty men and their giant killing. Then we read a psalm where David reflects on his kingdom and praise the, praise the Lord for how God established his kingdom. And now we're gonna do that whole thing in reverse. So now we're gonna start with a hymn or a psalm, and then we're gonna get another roster of mighty men. We're gonna kill another giant before it's all over with. And then we'll have another final story of crisis and atonement. So it's a, it's a sandwich. We have crisis and atonement on the outside. We have mighty men and giant killing on the next uh, piece. And then in the middle, we have these psalms and, and hymns right here. Uh, it's very carefully arranged material. It's not, it's not just um, random things that are thrown together here at the end. And also remember last week when we read David's psalm near the end of the book, I pointed out how it linked so well with so many of Hannah's themes uh, that we read way back at the end of 1 Samuel when Hannah sang to the Lord. Now David is going to continue in this little hymn. He continues to answer Hannah, how the hope that she longed for, all of the things that she prayed to God for, now all of these things are becoming realized. Remember what Hannah sang. She sang, Yahweh kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he brings up. Yahweh makes poor and he makes rich. He brings low and he lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. What was going on when Hannah sang that? What was going on when she wrote that there at the beginning of 1 Samuel? Well, if you recall, it's the last days of the judges. These are the days uh, where there's no king in Israel. Every man is doing what was right in his own eyes. It was, it was anarchy. It was, you know, no rule, no, no authority. The priest was Eli, and Eli's sons were taking advantage of the worshipers who came up to the tabernacle. They were mistreating. They were abusing the young women at the sanctuary. As that's going on, the Philistines are running rampant throughout the land. They're doing whatever they like. The Philistines are running roughshod over God's people. The Ark of the Covenant was lost in battle. I mean, it was just one bad thing after another. These were dark days. They were living in a fog of wickedness when Hannah writes her song. 
But what's happened since Hannah's time? Are we still in that place? Are things still that bad? No, no. The wicked men and their wicked practices, the wicked rulers of her day have all been brought to nothing. Hannah's prayers have been answered through her son Samuel and the man that he anointed, David. God has delivered his people. Later on, a young woman named Mary is going to sing a very similar song to Hannah's song. And through Mary and, and, and through Mary's son and through the people he anoints, there is deliverance and there is salvation. Um, so now after all of these years, uh, instead of grieving under the oppression of wicked rulers, David can describe the blessings of a people when their leaders rule righteously in the fear of God. Now, the Philistines have been subdued. The giants have been killed. They've been wiped out. The ark is not among the Philistines. It's not among the Gentiles. It's now resting securely in Jerusalem. The threats that came to the kingdom from Saul's house, the threats that came to the kingdom from David's own house have been put down. And there is peace and there is safety. Does that mean everything's perfect now? Does that mean we're in heaven? The kingdom has come? No need for anything more? No, no, not everything is perfect. There's still a lot of stuff that needs to be worked out. Solomon's going to build the temple. We don't have a temple yet. But it's a lot better. It's a lot better than it was. And blessings have come to the people with a stability of a leadership that recognizes that God's law is higher than man's law. So if you live during David's time and you remember the stories that your parents and grandparents told about living during Eli's time or living during Saul's time and you heard those stories, you ought to have been grateful for the days of David. You ought to have been grateful for King David and the kingdom of David. You see, sometimes amazing blessings, incredible, mind-blowing, extraordinary blessings are cleverly disguised as okay things, right? If you look around at, in David's time, you say, yeah, this is okay. Yeah, this is all right. But if you didn't have the perspective of living under Saul's time, if you didn't know what it was like to live under Eli, you would say, yeah, I guess, I guess this is fine. I guess we can get by. But if you did live during Eli's time and you could see what things were like under David, you would be bursting. With, I mean, every day would be a feast. Oh my goodness, what an amazing, incredible deliverance God has worked on our behalf. Sometimes amazing things are disguised as okay things. And if we're perfectionistic and if we're cynical, we miss them. And we don't, we don't give thanks for them because they just look, oh, that's okay. That's okay. No, no, you don't understand. I mean, that peanut butter jelly sandwich, do you understand what went into that? All the work that bread, peanut butter, oh my goodness, it's amazing. Peanut butter, jelly, oh wow. It's wonderful. We miss all kinds of extraordinary things because they're just okay. And well, if you live during David's time, you might've said, yeah, this is okay. But God had worked an extraordinary deliverance from Hannah's time to David's time. So all of Hannah's answered prayers come out in David's short song here. And so I'm, I'm just gonna walk quickly through it once again as we read it. Now let's reflect on it. These are the last words of David. Thus says David, the son of Jesse, Thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. He begins with several short descriptions of himself, but in the third person, he first identifies himself as the son of Jesse. Why? Why does he start there? Well, Jesse's not necessarily an important man in church history or in biblical history. We know him because he was uh, uh, David's father, 
but we don't know much else about him. Uh, David's from Bethlehem, not a place of note, not a place with a lot of influence or connections. So to say that David is a son of Jesse is to remind us that the Lord has taken him from obscurity and he set him up. David comes from nowhere, but he's been raised up on high. He says, thus declares, and the word says there, we could translate it declares, thus declares David the son of Jesse, thus declares the man raised up on high. Remember, that's what Hannah saying. Hannah said, he lifts up the poor and the beggar and seats them among princes. What does Mary sing? What does Mary sing? He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of low degree. And David says, that's me. That's, that's what God has done with me. God has lifted me up. It's these, it's these reversals of fortune that we repeatedly read in the scriptures that bring us so much hope that, that you and I were you know, often muddling through the worries and the fears and the sickness and the lack and the sorrows of this life. And, and we are also those who have been raised up to be seated in the heavenly places with Jesus, as Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians. It, in so many ways, we feel like we're in Hannah's spot, right? We feel like we're living in chaos under tyrants and dark days, looking forward to the complete and realized rule of the Davidic king, King Jesus. And in some ways we are, and, and yeah, we get that description in that sense, yeah. But we're also, remember, we're also in David's spot. The king has already been lifted up. The king has already been enthroned over all the, all the cosmos. And, and so his, his rule is real. David declares these things like an oracle. I declare this, I declare this, like, like a prophet speaking in the power of God's Holy Spirit. He is the anointed of the God of Jacob. In, in fact, he has indeed been ordained by the uh, anointing oil of Samuel. He's also been anointed by the Holy Spirit. And he is the sweet psalmist of, of Israel. Over, uh, over 70 psalms in the Psalter are directly attributed to David, and he probably had influence over many more and, and likely wrote many other psalms that we don't have today. Uh, maybe we'll find them uh, at some point in the future. Um, he was a king that didn't simply allow worship to take place. You know, it, it's nice to have a king who will just let you worship and a king that will uh, permit worship and make it easy to worship. That's a great blessing. But David wasn't just a king who permitted worship. David was a king who led in worship. David was a king who wrote the songs for worship. Imagine having a, a president who was a worship leader. Imagine having a pastor who was a, uh, a poet and, and was serious about God's worship and the worship of his church. That was David. David wrote the songs for worship. Having the right kind of songs for worship is essential. It's, it's it's tough to worship when you have bad music. You, you, you can't have a culture of life without, without good music. Aimless, hopeless, crude music is a symptom of a dead culture. But this king, this king that God gave his people leads in writing and singing great songs, Holy Spirit-inspired songs, which give life to the culture. And he directly references that inspiration. This all came from the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 2, The Spirit of Yahweh spoke by me. His words were on my tongue. All these psalms that David writes express the full range of emotion of, of human experience. And also, they're the words of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who groans with us and brings our sufferings and brings our cries to the ear of the Father. Now, now this king whom God has raised up, 
this king whom God has anointed, who is, has brought him from nowhere, has brought him from obscurity, set him up. God has filled him with his Holy Spirit. On the tongue of this king are God's words. Now this king rules in righteousness. Why? Because he fears God above all things. Verse 3, the God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men must be just ruling in the fear of God. What does it mean to rule in the fear of God? It means that I recognize that there is someone more powerful and higher than me. I am accountable to God. I'm not at the top of the hierarchy. I'm not God. I can't do anything that I please. So the king who is just will answer to God. He, he rules, he rules indeed, but he rules in the fear of God and his rule is submitted to God. It's only when a ruler is fully submitted to God that his rule can be entirely just. Only when he's thinking like God thinks. And, and that goes back to what I was talking about at the beginning, that I can speak authoritatively here. Why? Why can I say with so much confidence these things? It's because God has spoken here, and I'm just repeating God's words. Why can I be confident to allow liberty and room and space for people to exercise wisdom and self-discipline over here? It's because God hasn't spoken over here, so we can allow liberty in these areas. That's, that's what just rule looks like. It's rule that is submitted to God and is bounded on all sides by the fear of God. Now he turns to uh, some new creation language in verse 4. And he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. When uh, God created the sun, moon, and stars, he commissioned them to rule the day and the night. And then ever since then, heavenly bodies and earthly rulers have always been associated with each other. And David draws on this picture to show the specific ways that the king rules like the sun rules the day. The, the righteous king is like the morning sun which shines after the long dark night. The righteous king is like the sun that breaks through the clouds as I've been praying for for weeks and weeks and weeks. It's been raining since 2013 and I'm ready for the sun to break through the clouds and we're all ready for the sunshine. Uh, the other day I was sitting with somebody and the sun broke through the window and I had to stop what I was saying. No, that's the sun. That's the sun. It feels good. Let's get in the sun. Well, that's how we long for the sun to shine through the clouds. And the righteous king is like that. He causes the spring, uh, the, the grass to spring out of the earth after the rain. Let's, let's think about each one of those phrases very quickly. How is the righteous king like the morning sun? God's king brings light out of darkness. He brings a new day. David was raised up to be that new day after the darkness of Eli, after the great darkness of Saul. And then later, Absalom brought a kind of shadow over the land and Sheba's rebellion brought shadows over the land. And David was the king that broke through the clouds and, and, and his brightness shone over the land. Israel was subject to rulers that didn't shine like the sun. So they stumbled around in darkness aimlessly until the king shone again. And in the same way, Jesus is the king who comes when Israel again is suffering under the tyrants and the dark clouds of awful rulers. When Jesus comes, it's all fatigue. 
It's all sorrow. When Jesus comes, it's, it's, it's depressing. But, but Jesus comes and John's gospel starts with all of this talk about a light so bright that the darkness can't overcome it. Isn't that John chapter one? Jesus gives sight to the blind in his ministry. And now that the sun has risen, now that the day star has been seen, now people can see where they're going. David is the sun. Jesus is the greater son, both S-U-N and S-O-N. He's the greater son. And Daniel says, you know what? We shine like the brightness of the firmament. Um, and so we shine with Jesus. We'll get to, to that theme in just a minute. After that, the son, David says, brings fertility on the earth. The sun causes the vegetation to shoot up. Sunshine and rain turn the land into a garden. Under the light and the warmth of the righteous king, the land flows with milk and honey. And so the role of the king is not to milk the people for all they're worth, but to make them productive, not to crush them, but to nurture them so that they can bear fruit. He feeds them and he refreshes them. When, when the, the land is glorious and attractive, the husbandman, the farmer, is glorious and attractive. And so when the kingdom is glorious, the king is glorious. When the kingdom is attractive, the king is attractive. The glorious kingdom is the glory of the king. And he nurtures that through his rule. And then David talks about the tender grass springing out of the earth. Grass represents the people. How many times in the scriptures do you read, you know, all flesh is like grass. Men spring from the earth like grass. Psalm 103, as for man, his days are like grass. People are compared to grass. So here the flourishing grass is the flourishing of the people. And the king is the sun under whom the grass flourishes. And that grass takes into account both, you know, fruit-bearing plants and grain and all this and all the things that the grass needs to prosper, warmth, light, rain, all comes from the king. It all comes from the king. He hasn't stolen it from somewhere else to give it over here. No, he's the source. He's the source of all blessing. Well, David, as he says this, you can start to say, well, David, you know, I really, I'm, I'm listening to you and I know what this is a wonderful description of the righteous king, but David, you haven't always been this way. You haven't always done this. You weren't light and you weren't refreshing to the house of Uriah. You weren't that. And many times, even in your own house, you weren't this way. David senses this. And so principally, he's sure to remind us that, that this is the this is the description of the king who is to come. This is the greater son of David. Saul didn't rule this way. Make, make no mistake. Saul didn't rule this way. David tried to. David failed. But Jesus will do these things perfectly. And so David con confesses, I haven't always been the model king. Verse 5, although my house is not so with God. You know, all these things that I just said may be true on some days, but my house is not so with God yet. He has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure, for this is all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not make it increase? So my house hasn't always been healing sunshine, but God has been faithful to me and he has ordered me. He has made me secure. He has made an everlasting covenant with me. And, and, and this coming from David, this isn't a band-aid. This isn't a, a, a lame attempt to cover for his failures. no. God's covenant faithfulness to me is the reason that I can understand any of this to begin with. I haven't always been faithful to God, but God has always been faithful to me. 
And that's why I can say these things to you, because he has shined on me, because he has watered me. I can in turn bless and feed Israel. Apart from God's covenant, David would be wallowing in his failures, just like Saul wallowed in his failure. But because David responded to the correction of the Lord, because he responded to God's chastisement like a covenant keeper, the Lord's blessing remained on David. And so then because of the Lord's faithfulness to him, he could deal rightly with covenant breakers in Israel. There were those in Israel who were not like grass, who were weeds and thorns. Verse 6, but the sons of rebellion shall all be as thorns thrust away because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in their place. The grass, the grain, the flowers... Uh, the productive plants thrive under the king who shines like the sun, but there are unproductive thorns. There are weeds that only harm those who try to pull them up. You, you can't grab thorns with your bare hands. You have to chop them out. That's the way you have to deal with thorns and weeds. You can't cultivate them. No, much, no matter how much you try to fertilize them, they're not going to bear good fruit. All you, all you can do is chop them out and burn them down. That goes for a thorny Bushes, that goes for thorny people, thorny rulers, thorny philosophies, and governments. The enemies of God can only be dealt with one way, and that's, as he says, with iron and the shaft of a spear. Now, he's mixing metaphors there because you wouldn't go to the garden with a spear and try to root out some thorny bramble bush, right? You, that would not be an effective uh, uh, tool to use in the garden. Uh, however, we understand that he's talking about thorny people and thorny uh, philosophies and thorny systems. A righteous king, in order to protect the good plants, has to make war on the weeds and thorns. So God's king not only shines on the righteous, but he's also a threat to the wicked. He weeds them out and he casts them into the fire. The true king who obeys God is going to be a king who sets himself in opposition to Satan and his forces. That's what David did. David was the giant killer. That's what Jesus did. Jesus went toe-to-toe -to -toe with Satan and took down his kingdom. The true king defeats Satan and his people follow his example. David is a giant killer. David's mighty men are giant killers. And that section that's going to follow, and we'll read it next week, shows us more of that. Uh, but, but for now, we get to see that David's declaration of who God's king is, uh, what he looks like, is a perfect contrast to what Samuel said way back when the people were clamoring for a king. They said, we want a king like the nations. And Samuel said, well, this is what you're going to get. If you ask for a king like the nations, he's going to take, he's going to take, he's going to take, he's going to take, he's going to take. And now David says, well, that's right. Kings like the nations do that. But here's what the anointed spirit-filled king is like. And everything that David gives us here ultimately is a description of Jesus. Read back through and think back through that and think about how all of this is Jesus. Jesus is the one who has been raised up and enthroned on high. Jesus is the anointed of God, the sweet singer of Israel. Jesus woos his bride with his song. He sings over her. He sings to her. A king that sings gives us liberty to sing. A king that expresses himself in all of these range of human experiences and emotions gives us room and liberty to do that as well. So Jesus is the sweet singer, the sweet psalmist of Israel. Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus rules in justice in the fear of God. Jesus is the son who brings light, who renews the land, who causes it all to flourish like a garden. Jesus is the one who takes out a spear and roots out thorns and weeds and defends his people. 
And he inspires his people to imitate him, to be mighty men and giant killers and head crushers themselves. This, people of God, this is the kind of king we are in want of. This is the kind of king that we pray for. We don't pray that we would have no king. We don't pray that we would have no government or that government would simply butt out. We pray that we would have a king who allows good things to flourish that we would have a king who would put a stop to the weeds and the thorns and who would bless the righteous. And as we pray for that, we also remember that, oh yeah, God has put his church in charge of the earth. We are his stewards over the earth. We are his caretakers. So if you and I are to discharge our duty faithfully, we have to rule like this. There's this pattern. How the king rules is how the people rule. Again, He's a giant killer. We're giant killers. He defeats Satan. We defeat Satan. This is how he rules. Therefore, this is how we rule. So so where has God given you influence? Where has God given you authority in the world? Where has he called you to exercise strength? Well, uh, anyone who who thinks and acts and, um, and, and reigns like Jesus is the one who will be blessed. Wherever we are called to exercise our authority, we must rule like this. So over what has God called you to reign and take authority, wherever that is, he has called you to reign like your king, to reign like Jesus. Reign like the King David describes here. So for yourself, run back through this inventory. Follow back through the king, the ruler, the father, the mother, the boss, the administrator, the leader who reigns like Jesus. This is the description. You're the one who God has raised up, not not the one who has self-promoted, not the one who has clawed your way to the top for your own power, your own esteem. No, he's the one that God has raised up. The one anointed by God, a sweet singer like the psalmist, speaking comfort and encouragement and hope and rest relating compassionately to the needs and struggles and fears and anxieties of the people you lead and speaking peace, just like the psalmist does. That this king is filled by the Holy Spirit. God's word is on your tongue. You understand biblical justice, which means I know that I'm gonna speak where God has spoken. And where God has not spoken, I'm not going to speak. You understand that you rule in the fear of God, knowing that you're gonna have to give account for everything that you do. You shed light in the darkness. You provide nourishment for good things to grow. And you admit like David when you failed to do that. David says, my house is not like this. My house is not so with God. Well, that means if you're like this king that David describes, this human king, then you repent. You confess your faults. You confess your failures. One of the most important things that you can do, parents, for your children is admit to them when you mess up. That takes all, all accusation of hypocrisy out of the way when you say, look, you know, I lost my temper there and I shouldn't have done that. You know what? I failed to listen to you when you were talking to me and I jumped off the handle and uh, I, I flew off the handle and I shouldn't have responded that way. Admit, admit when you have, and, and confess your sins. Now you've opened up, you've just demonstrated, this is how we repent. This is how we deal with things. David does it. We do it. You confess your faults. You confess your failures. You're not too big or too proud to do that because you're a covenant keeper. 
And because you're a covenant keeper, you also take up your spear and you defend your garden against the sons of rebellion, the thorns and the weeds. You don't tolerate them. You throw them on the burn pile. In next, next week's section, we're going to look at a man who fought God's enemy so hard that his hand uh, affixed to his sword. He was fighting so long and so hard that he couldn't open his hand from his sword. Uh, we'll, we'll spend more time looking at that next week, but that's how we fight, so that our hand grips the sword in such a way that you can't, you can't pry it open. Uh, it's always affixed to the spear, rooting out the thorns and the weeds first in our hearts, then in our homes, then uh, around us. Um, and, and God's king doesn't tolerate them. And we'll look at more at what that means next week. This, people of God, is a blueprint of Jesus' reign. This is David's prophecy of what David will be like. But this is also a description of how we reign. And wherever you've been given an opportunity to lead, this this is your job description. This is how you rule. And so let's pray that God would give us grace to do this. Father, we pray that you would raise us all up like you raised up David, that you would fill us with your spirit, that your word would be on our tongue, that when we would speak, it would sound like the Psalms, that it would sound like uh, the, uh, the, the words that you gave David. Uh, and that you've given us. We pray that we would rule in justice and in fear of you. We pray that you would give us grace to admit our faults, to repent where we have sinned, and that you would give us strength and courage for the fight. Father, cause us to reign like this, and when you have raised up your people who fight and live and reign like this, so then give us earthly rulers who follow this example. Give us earthly rulers who would follow this blueprint. Father, we don't deserve them right now because we're disobedient. We're so far from you. But Father, revive us and restore us and reform us and give us leaders who would be examples for us in these ways. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.